Reverend Sherwin asked, would somebody like to say the prayer? And you put your hand up and he said, okay, Sarah. And your dad and I are going, oh gosh, what, what is she going to do? <laughs> you know, and you said the Lord's prayer from beginning to end with great command. And then you sat down and everybody clapped. <laughs> Dad said it was the first time he's ever seen a standing ovation for the Lord's prayer. <laughs> they were all so enthusiastic. And your dad and I were going like, what is she going to pray? You know? What do you want to be when you grow up? It's a question you begin hearing when you're pretty young. When I was little, I had so many different answers. There was helicopter pilot, obviously. I also wanted to be an actress, I began memorizing lines at five. I also wanted to be a doctor like my dad, or a vet, or a horse trainer, or a dolphin trainer. I had all these things I wanted to be. Never once did it ever cross my mind that I would want to be any sort of religious leader, specifically not a lead pastor of a church. But somehow, that's what I ended up being. Hi, it's Sarah. On this episode, we're going to dive into career Sonderlust. Even if you aren't in ministry or even in the religious sector, I think all of us wonder if we're living out of our calling. I asked the woman who knows me best and who knew me first, my mom. We're going to ask for some insights on whether I'm living into what she thought I would end up doing. I'm also going to talk to Reverend Rob Lee, a pastor who has followed his calling all the way to the stage of the MTV VMAs. And of course, everyone's favorite, John will pipe in. Let's get started by talking to the one and only Christine Heath, or mom, as I call her. So my call in the ministry was kind of weird, right? So I didn't know what I wanted to be. Do you remember when I went to the guidance counselor and took all those tests to like figure out what I was supposed to be? And she's your friend. And I took mm-hmm. that. <laughs> I took that test and... Uh, yes. It scored equal across the board. Uh Uh-huh. I do remember that. I felt like I couldn't do anything. And then her advice to me, since I was an artist and also someone who was studying veterinary medicine, was that I could design the interior of vet clinics. (laughs) Well, she was thinking on the the bright side. Uh, What I admired about you through all of that time is that you went to see the dean of science at USM and you asked him, what would you need without too much changing, should you want to go into medicine? And you stuck to it, even when you were doing inorganic chemistry and things like that, rather than taking them basket weaving course, you stuck to it because that would give you the opportunity to change. Don't you think it's funny that my fallback was medicine? (laughs) No, I don't. Actually, you were very interested in science. You actually scored perfectly on your science reasoning. Oh yeah, on the ACT. You always told people that you couldn't do math, but actually you were stronger in math. That was your own self-talk. When you got into psychology, you sort of found a home there. You were more enthusiastic about that, although you did all the other quite well. And then one day you went with Karen's group from the Wesley Foundation to Gulf Shores, and you were camping in that lovely sort of area that's, uh, I think it's actually a state park. And that's where you told me once that you had the idea. You told Karen then, and from then on, you were quite insistent that that's what you wanted to do. Your dad and I advised you to apply to several places. (laughs) Several grad schools? Several (laughs) grad schools. If you wanted to do divinity, Uh that was wonderful. That was fine. You had people power, if you will, and you enjoyed being with people. We wanted you to apply to several grad schools or maybe even try to do an advanced degree in psychology. You know, 
diversify a little bit just to make sure that you would be accepted. But you were insistent that you wanted to go to Duke for divinity. And by cracking, <laughs> you were accepted by Duke for divinity. You're one and only that you applied to. Yeah, I didn't really have a fallback plan. And God bless them. They even offered scholarships, <laughs> which was very nice. Yeah, that was that. So, And I think you had a very good time at Duke. You know, I always think like started at five doing the Christmas play or maybe before that mm-hmm. even. And I was a natural mm-hmm. at that. Or at least that's what I was told. I don't remember five. So our town had that big Christmas play. Yes. Penny Varney. That was Penny Varney's. She brought it. She had done it. And we did it every second yeah. year. And one year I was, I think, the innkeeper's wife. And one year <laughs> I was the... Uh, I'm not sure I wasn't the wife of a Roman soldier or something, but anyway. I tell you what, Mom, you made the rounds. I did, you know, typecasting. <laughs> but you, you and Jonathan, for the first two or three that were done, were the children that she was telling the story to. And we had a lot of lines. Yes, I remember you did. it astounded people that at five I could, that I was able to memorize yeah, lines that yeah. young. And then Dad, he ended up being one of the shepherds for several years in a row. I remember those moments, or even like as a tiny kid, my dance teacher used to get mad at me in practice. Do you remember? (laughs) Because in rehearsals and stuff, I would goof off and then I would get on the stage and be the only one who knew the dance. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's right. But you would also tell everybody else how to do it. (laughs) That sounds right. And I just think from a young age, I came alive in front of people. Yeah, I loved being on stage. I think when I was a kid, I wanted to act But I knew that whatever I did with my life needed to mean something or help other people because I think I watched dad and you, you know, with dad being a doctor and you being a nurse. And I watched you like nurse all those kids. You are integrating them into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think I, from you guys, learned that your vocation should help other people. And I think acting for me, that didn't seem like it did. I was born in Bayvert, Newfoundland. The reason that I was born there is that my parents were serving as medical missionaries to a small outpost. I think that's where I learned that vocation needs to matter. Both of my parents have always been passionate about serving the poor and the underserved. In fact, that's why we moved to Northern Ontario, and in the end, why we moved to Mississippi. My parents love taking care of people. In college, I was so busy with playing rec sports and my sorority, but I still took time to be part of like two college Bible study groups. And then I spent most of my free time with the youth from Parkway Heights. Yes, you did. You spent a lot of time and I don't remember the exact history. I know you were one of the intern, right? But you did and because Will's way was to be very involved and to do things extracurricular and out of, you didn't just have a, a youth meeting and then did nothing with the youth all week. He was very, I don't, I'm, I'm appropriate, but very much involved with, and he taught you to do that. And I think that was a very good lesson for you to learn. Even now that, what do you think? Like, do you think now that I have a good balance with work? Because I think one of the things my friends say all the time is I work too much. You need to be in a position where you're loving your job and your job is not draining you. It's, you know, everybody's job is going to be draining at some points, but overall it can't be a just a, a life suck. So... I think you need to be, and that's easy for people in the ministry, 
to let, especially pastors, to let their job suck everything out of their life and then they burn out. Yeah, and you probably have come by that, honestly, but I I have to admit, I think for all of us, your dad and I and your brother too, we tend to be the ones who put a lot of time in yeah. <laughs> and do a lot of stuff. But that's not always, I'm realizing the very best way, you need to have time for yourself as well. That doesn't mean you shirk your duties. It's a fine balance. It, it is almost as important to have some time. Otherwise, you don't have anything left at some point in time. And you can't just keep giving, 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 and then expect to be able to give if the need arises too. So, yeah, I think that, that uh, we've probably taught you. I need to figure out a balance. Yeah, figure <laughs> out a balance. Yeah. I don't know how to do it, if I'm honest. I have no idea how yeah. to find it. Because yeah. for me, like pastoring is only part of what I, and I love it, right? Running a church is, can take all of you. Mm-hmm. And then I spend the extra time writing and speaking and touring and all the stuff that I, that actually makes me come alive. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think, are you surprised by the way that my ministry has gone that it's not been a traditional or standard way? I guess I'm not totally su- surprised. You've been very, um, you, you did acting classes that I felt was when you were trying to get some balance in your life and you like to do art. And so that you would try and incorporate and you are capable of incorporating that into your ministry. No, sir. I, I think you're a very inventive person and that is one of your strengths. And so that you followed through on it hasn't been a total shock. For your dad and I, who are older farts, mm-hmm. doing stuff technically like iPods and, I- and, blogs. I- iPods, <laughs> iPods and iVlogs. So you know, you know what I mean. Blogs and how do you and feel stuff. about I, doing my, uh, my my podcast? Because you keep calling it a, a blog. I know. Well, see, this is this is you know you got to figure out where I'm coming from. iPod and podcast. Yeah, you know, same word, same root. So we've had to accommodate because we listen to um, other iPods too. I don't Pod, know whether podcast. You listen to other podcasts. Other podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Um, but that's all been, we've had to, to learn, you know, the, the fact that you're carrying your little computer re-phone with you that does so much other stuff and taking pictures with your phone, you know, things like that. So we've been adjusting and I think today is a, a different world and you have to approach people differently. And I think we're just learning the effect of technology on our communications. We're learning that technology is the new revolution and it's changing things very much so that you are following a different path, but a very appropriate, reasonable path. It's not so surprising to me, no. I am a United Methodist pastor, and all that means is that I was ordained within the United Methodist Church. There are different denominations, and all of them have different stipulations for what makes a pastor and different requirements. Most of us, however, as pastors, have bosses above us. I'm really lucky. I currently have a district superintendent and a bishop above me. Both have been really supportive of me and seem to be okay with the different ways that I do ministry, but that hasn't always been the case, and it isn't the case of all my colleagues. I decided that I wanted to talk to someone who understands what it's like to do ministry under the public eye. So I called a friend of mine, Reverend Rob Lee. Rob Lee wrote Stained Glass Millennials. He also happens to have the name of one of his famous ancestors, 
and it's the name itself that ended him up on a stage. He'll share that story a little bit later. But ever since then, he's been the subject of lots of tweets, lots of emails, and lots of Facebook messages. Not all of them positive, but he seems to know what it means to be a pastor in all of these settings. So as I look at my own career and look at what it means to be a pastor in the public eye, I thought he'd be helpful to talk to. I did not know, I mean, I knew once I got the book, but I didn't realize that your name was Robert E. Lee. Well, it's Robert W. (laughs) Robert it is Rob W. Okay, there you go. So you're not. I'm not. I'm an indirect descendant, so that means that I come down from his brother. Thank goodness, I don't have to deal with like that fully. I don't have to unpack that fully, okay. but I do have that legacy of having the namesake, um, Robert Lee, which gotcha. is weird. Yeah, that is um, weird. So you want to tell a little bit about uh, how you became a public figure really recently? <laughs> Yeah. So um, I ended up being invited after doing a piece on NPR after Charlottesville. I did a piece on NPR's morning edition, and then I uh, ended up on the VMAs, the Video Music Awards, which is like Millennial Mecca. And I was able to introduce Heather Heyer's mother, Susan Bro. Heather Heyer was killed in Charlottesville. And then after that, everything kind of hit the fan and I had to resign my position at my church because of uh, sticking to my ideas about Black Lives Matter and the importance therein. And since then, people have started calling me a public theologian, which is like that weird title that I never expected to have, but suddenly it's been thrust on me. And so I'm living into that new season of life of being in demand in the theological world and writing all these pieces and working on a new book and doing all this stuff that I never thought I'd be doing at 25. But it's part of what God has called me to do ultimately. And so I'm living into that. So one of the things that I've just been so impressed with your ability to remain pastoral in that. And by that, I mean, I think of you as a pastor first and a public theologian is, is an extension of that. So even when you answer people's questions or whatever it may be, I feel like you're coming at it from the position of someone who really takes his vocation seriously. So for instance, you were a caller, which I do not, although I've been tempted to. You should try time. <laughs> okay. Do you want to know the, um, the superficial reason I don't? Why not? They don't make them my size. It's really hard to find. And every time I've tried, they're way too big for me, the shirts. I can help you out with that. I'll send you a link. Anyway, sorry. Off topic. What I love is that there's this sense of who you are that is beyond the local church. And so one of the critiques that I receive a lot is you need to just focus on your local church. For me, what has been growing our local church quickest, perhaps, and began the growth was the idea of people had heard me on a lot of other podcasts and they heard me working within the sphere of people who are none and done. So people who are done with the church or never liked the church in the first place. They heard me on podcasts that are specific places where they felt comfortable. And then they hear, oh, by the way, this is the Reverend Sarah Heath. So a lot of the folks who are coming to our church are coming because they've heard me in a different sphere. I happen to think that's the way that God's community is currently being built because people are They're no longer brand loyal to denominations as much as they were. They're no longer brand loyal even to the idea of Christianity. Um, And so I, I feel like because of who I am and what my identity is and maybe some of the struggles I've gone through, I am just really drawn to and enjoy ministry with people who feel like they no longer fit in the church. So when you do that kind of work, however, I find this very bizarre thing happens with my colleagues. And I have a tough time labeling it as jealousy. I'm not sure how to label it because jealousy, it doesn't seem like the right word, but there is a sense of you're not doing it the way that we've done it 
or we've ever seen it done before necessarily. So then they say things like, you're just doing this to build your platform. So have you experienced that critique as someone, because now, I mean, you were on The View for goodness sake. I mean, you, did Uh, People have said that, but here's the deal. Like I think of a parish like John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist faith considered a parish. It was like the world, like this is our mission to the world. His envision uh, of a church was not just like a place where people come on Sundays, but a community center where people came throughout their entire week. Because, you know, as as Barack Obama said, the sweet hour of prayer lasts the whole week long. And I really do believe that. Mm. Like, I believe that there is something to be said about like your church and your community and your calling be about getting out there into the community and inviting people into your space, but also going into their spaces as well. And the reason why people are so concerned concerned about you is because you're an entrepreneur in ministry. Will Willimon, who is one of my greatest mentors in ministry, would always say that people in ministry love mediocrity. Like they dabble in it. That's their thing. (laughs) So the whole idea of you being an entrepreneur and going out on the limb and taking the risk for something big is scary to those in power and is scary to those who have a status quo that they really like because their pensions are tied up in it. Their their livelihoods are tied up in it. So no wonder they'd be afraid of like giving that up. But ultimately, we're thinking differently about how we do church. And that's the best way to do it is to think differently because Jesus thought differently. You know, in the Hebrew Bible thought differently. You know, the prophets thought differently about how to do things, and it got them killed sometimes. You know, that's the danger and all. But the real fun in it is that you find your own soul, and you ultimately find yourself amidst the fray of knowing that church is a beautiful mess. And that's the thing is, I think, because I'm so comfortable being outside of the church, and that is, you know, part of that's cultural for me. I grew up Well, it's kind of an odd mix, right? I grew up in Canada, so that's outside, Mm -hmm. in some ways, is outside of the church. Because even though I was a Christian, the community and culture there is much more post-Christian. Then I moved to the Mm -hmm. South. I moved to Mississippi. So then I'm in, like, the Bible Belt. And I tried really hard to fit into the Christian culture, even though I wasn't necessarily comfortable with a lot of things about it. I went to a <laughs> kind of like a Baptist college group when I was in college until like I got the call to ministry and then they were like, nope, as a lady, can't do it. But I was part of the Wesley Foundation, which is a Methodist ministry. And if you're not part of the church, all of this doesn't really make much sense. It's like, aren't they all the same thing? Well, actually, no, because one was comfortable with me being a woman in ministry and one was not. And so I think I've always felt outside of a lot of expressions of Christianity. And so for me, I'm most comfortable inviting people that feel outside. That's yeah. really valuable. Like, let me ask you this. Are you the type of person who's willing to, to risk what people are saying about you for those people outside the church? You need to be to, you need to hear some good news, whatever that good news is. Because um, if you're that type of person, then we need you in the church. We desperately need you in the church and you shouldn't give up. I think... I mean, I don't know that I would say I'm close to giving up, but I'm wondering if I can, you know, Sonderless is the idea of like, I look at Sonder being like the idea that you recognize everybody's living a different life and lust is like, and I want to live that life. So like, for me, the difficulty is I feel like I'm in the liminal space between people who are like super churchy people. They're not my jam. People who, you know, completely reject the idea of spirituality or that's not really my I'm kind of in this like in between space where I feel really comfortable having these conversations with people and inviting them into that space so for me I I have that 
lust of what would it be like to get to like welcome people into the church, but not have to be the one running or receiving all the critique. And I know that's like ridiculous because there's always going to be critique, but I think it has just been a season of like knowing that I can't do church the same. Like probably like five years ago, I had a huge experience that like almost left ministry just because I was being told like, you have to be you know, set apart from everyone. And I was like, I want to be a human. Like I, I want to be a human. I I love Renee Brown. Like I just want to be authentic in who I am. And I wasn't being me in order to protect the comfort of others. I had gone through a heartbreak and I had to like almost stuff that down because that was the wisdom I was being told is like, people don't need to know you're hurting. Well, that made me less than a human. And I took that around for a while where I was like, I need to not you know, have human emotions <laughs> and it, and yeah. it, and it felt awful. And so I, I want to be different than that. And I think sometimes I, uh, grass is greener, right? So it's like, sometimes yeah. I want to be like, what would it be like to have a weekend? Like, would I have found my significant other if I could do the things I love? Like whenever my friends are having these epic adventures, my friends are, a lot of them are RV types, you know, the going around in an airstream, let's go up to Joshua tree type of people. And I look at them and I think I can, I have to be back on Sunday. And I feel like I missed out on like the, the saying I've been saying lately is like, dudes, I accidentally became a nun. Like my life has been so, so formed by my ministry. And that's another challenge my best friend had was like, you need to find friends outside. So it's like really hard for me when I feel like I have given so much of me to this job that I passionately want to be engaged in. But at the same time, I've received so much critique. You know, I, I got to speak at this huge United Methodist gathering. And it was almost ironic because some of the biggest critique I received was right before I went to speak at this about how do you reach emerging congregations, like people who are not about haven't been formed by the church and are looking for a place or want to be formed differently. And so I went and spoke at that. And it was just such a weird thing to say, because I was like, do you understand that like the way that I do things? So being on podcasts or, you know, speaking at events and this sort of thing that I often get accused of trying to build a platform, even doing this podcast for me, it's about like, if I can show you that you can be normal like a human being and also be a person of profound faith, I think it opens the door for other people. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. And I was just wanting to hear a little bit if you feel as someone who kind of that door like flew open. I mean, I I read it's really I try not to read people's comments on stuff, but I was getting real protective of you when people were like basically accusing you of the same thing on a grander scale for, um, being on the MTV Music Awards. How, how have you held on to your sense of calling and your sense of where God is in it? Because I would love to hear that. Well, when I was ordained to ministry, the preacher at my ordination service, Nathan Kirkpatrick, told me that you're not set apart, you're set within. Mm. And you are accountable to this world, first off, in a new way, by vocation of your ordination, by being a minister. And I really took that to heart. There are going to be haters all the time in the church because the church is made up of people. But I think one of the greatest losses that we could ever have is losing someone who is an entrepreneur and who is innovative in ministry. And I've tried to tell that to the church about a million different people who are wanting to be in ministries. But the systems are in place that make it hard for people to do this type of work. 
the ordination process, how you become a minister, is so draconian mm. in some denominations that it's impossible. So I think these all come together and remind me that the church is a deeply flawed place with deeply flawed people. But that being said, I have my doubts about it every day, but I know I love it. By vocation of like both of our ordinations, we were called into a system that is deeply broken. It's not our job to fix it, but it's our job to be the entrepreneurs and the innovators who change it. Mm. We may never see the credit for that, but Sarah, you're making a difference. And that does not need to be belittled in any way. And I know that critique is really hard because I get it all the time. I am told I've lost friends, like close friends over this because they say I'm grandstanding and I get what they're saying, but I know deep down in my heart they're wrong. So I kind of just have to say, screw it. I'm going to be the best damn minister I can be and let the world decide it for itself if I'm making a difference. And how I know it's making a difference is, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, is I have atheists tweeting at me saying, I would come to your church just to hear what you have to say. Uh It's that kind of love that brings people together, that kind of compassion that we are offering the world that needs to be given out by every minister. Now, unfortunately, we have ministers in all denominations who are closed off, who are cynical, who are waiting for retirement or who are counting the days until their next job. But if you can learn to love where you're planted and make life beautiful there, then you're on to something because that's what ministry ultimately is about, is making our context part of the kingdom of God. So what do you do now that you, because you're, you no longer have your local church, right? You're no longer um, employed by one church. So you're going and speaking almost every weekend, though, I see you preaching somewhere, which is kind of cool. So what do you do for your own sense of community and rootedness and feeling like you have folks? Like, how do you maintain your humanness within this faith? I have a really good therapist. And then I have a really good accountability people in my life, like my mentors, who I can call and say, hey, I really hate this right now. I need you to tell me why I'm doing it. And then they, in turn, sing the song that I've been singing all along back to me. It's a call and response kind of thing. And I think any good minister worth their weight has that in their life, someone to keep them accountable. It doesn't have to be even a minister. It can be a lay person. Like one person is my confirmation mentor who I can call and say, look, I'm having a really rough day. I just need you to think about me and send good thoughts my way. And then you can also have people who are in your career of ministry and vocation of ministry who can use the more lingo and theological lens to look through this stuff. But like ultimately, like I, I look at it this way. I think about my own wedding when I got married to Stephanie. The preacher who preached that day quoted Madeline Lingle and said that life is about is balanced between hope and risk. And that's ministry. Like you're risking something here. You're risking the a lot by going out and being with the people who are untouchable or unlovable by the church. But ultimately, that reminds me of someone else in our history. (laughs) Who would that be? (laughs) You know, it's Jesus. You remind me of Jesus's presence here on earth, who really, truly was with those untouchable, unlovable people. And that's what the church should look like in the 21st century, because we're failing miserably at what we're doing now. So the thing that I I love, I was speaking at lunch with this um, amazing woman and I was saying like, it's interesting because I don't always resonate with the American Christian story, like at all. I went to this like super 
<laughs> like Christian concert and these guys were like singing and they're beautiful. Like these guys were beautiful. They had the boat neck. I mean, you're getting the nice tattoos. They were gorgeous. And these women are like screaming like these guys, woo, you know, and, and then they stop and they gave their story about being Christians. And I was like, this is weird. And so I mm-hmm. turned, turned to my friend I was there with and I said, isn't this weird? And I happened to be backstage because it was a good friend of mine that um, runs the production company. I said, is this is this weird? He was like, no, it's so cool. Like, look how these people are loving this. And I was like, I, I don't love it. That's not Jesus to me. And I was like, I can't. All I said, all the words I could muster out was I can't. He was like, what do you mean you can't? I said, I can't Christian. And I walked out and I, I couldn't go back. I couldn't be back in that like flashy, let's celebrate this weird culture that we've created around Christianity that's like, that's just like this weird, only experiential, very, is it changing the world? No, I can't do it. I just can't. Now, and it's not to be critical of these people. I think it's a, you know, their expression of what faith looks like. But I think what I struggle with is how do I maintain a sense of, of my own humanity when it feels mm-hmm. like I'm an alien. And by that, I mean, <laughs> a lot of people can relate to me and that's great and it's awesome, but I always feel like I'm standing outside a little bit. You know, I'm either like too Christian, not too Christian, too spiritual for my friends who are like, that thing's weird, or I'm too, like you said, entrepreneurial for those who the system really works for. And then throw into the mix that I'm female and single and people just don't know what to do with it. And it leaves me feeling lonely at a core and a depth that I don't even know how to like not just run away from. Because it feels like if I wasn't a pastor, if I was just like a normal person, I use that word like (laughs) as if pastors and ministers aren't normal. But I feel like if I was a normal person that like not everyone was coming to, you know, and I was telling this this wonderful woman at lunch, I said, you know, I just think it's such a simple thing. I think as I look at Jesus and what he did, he just was with people. That's what he, he was just with people and calling them into something else and like helping people see each other and just this really neat. And we've turned it into this weird thing that basically you're fighting right now is you're fighting this on this public scale of like what Christianity is and what Christianity is not. So it's not, you know, American. It's not white. It's not, you know, it's so much more than that. Do you ever feel that deep sense of loneliness in this call? I do for different reasons because I'm like, I'm a male, you know, and like uh, I'm a cisgender male. So I don't have the same experience that you have as a, as a female minister. I resonate with the loneliness of it all because it's almost like we're in the wild, wild west right now. And we're left at an outpost and we're expected to somehow make sense of it all. And then if we're good, one day we'll be rewarded in heaven. That's kind of the narrative we've been told. Yeah. But I'm starting to think that maybe the beauty in all this is not the reward, but the experience. Mm. That there is something to be said about the here and now and the blessed withness, the being with someone in their moments of pain and grief or of joy and triumph. Like baptizing a baby, there is no greater thing in the world. Yeah. Or holding the hand of a widow, there is no greater honor in the world. Yeah. That's how I view ministry is that this is this is a great privilege for all of us. Mm -hmm. And we get too caught up in the fray. And 
that's when it becomes lonely is when we get caught up in the systems that allow us to forget the moments of pure and unbridled bliss or pure and unbridled honor and humility. You also have to care for yourself too. Like you can't ignore the fact that you're feeling these feelings of like loneliness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the danger in all of this is just like being a self-sacrificing person and just sacrificing everything for it. Like you need to have times when you can go on vacation mm-hmm. and you need to have, like this is not just a career question for ministry. This is for any driven person who is trying to make it in life at the age that we both are. And to add on that, the fact that we're millennials, like, you know, we have to care for our own souls. And so in turn, we can care for others, kind of like the wounded healer and Henry Nowen's idea of that. Oh, you know, I you, love can, that book. You, you can only pour out if you've been poured into. Mm. And so that requires you caring for yourself and going out with friends and doing those things that make you happy and doing those things that fulfill you. I mean, there's beauty in all of this. And I think you have a future as a public theologian, whether that will always be in a church setting, I don't know. But I think you're going to be one of those people who's a game changer, who's going to think about this way we do church differently and is going to challenge others to do the same. And don't let the people who are jealous of you get you down. It's weird for me to hear that I'm one of Rob's heroes. It's actually weird for me to ever hear that I'm a hero. (laughs) I don't think of myself that way. Sometimes I get accused of having a big ego, but if you really know me, my ego is actually pretty small and pretty fragile. I'm pretty sensitive and I care a lot about people. It's what makes doing my job difficult. It doesn't take a lot to critique me and make me feel like I should just sort of shrink back into the shadows and not be me. But even as I record this voiceover, I'm sitting in a hotel in North Carolina. I just did an event with 5,000 students and their leaders. It was incredible. I missed my local church while I was gone. In fact, I feel like I should be working every day all the time. And I know that's not a healthy pace, but both just seem so important. You see, while I was speaking at this event, I got to have so many one-on-one conversations with kids that I know for them were life-giving and also maybe life-changing. And I remember when people had those conversations with me when I was that age. So I continue to do it. I continue to hustle. But I'm tired. I'm excited for what's in the future. But I want to make sure that as I move into this, that I learn how to have balance. That's what this whole podcast is about. Learning to find balance and letting go of Sonderless and being okay with enough being enough. I hope you'll join me next episode as we continue the conversation of how do we avoid Sonderless in our careers? And is it time for us to move on from our careers or is it time for us to be satisfied with where we are? Thanks for listening and as always, continue to follow your bliss. Sonderless the Podcast is hosted by me, Sarah Heath. This episode was produced by myself, Allie Fleming, and Corey Severi. Corey is also our team's editor, and Allie handles our graphics. Our website and marketing is done by Alex Maldonado. Our theme is written and performed by Daniel Roberts. You can visit us anytime at www.sonderlessthepodcast.com. And to find out more about yours truly, please visit revsarahheath.com.